You are listening to Smokin' Theologians, a long-form conversation with hosts Alex Gonzalez and Preston Graham. Alex is a filmmaker, digital creative, and our designated layman. Preston is a church planter and pastor, author, and our theologian. This is season two, episode 12. All right, I don't have a lot left, but I'm going to smoke it back again. So, man, a whole week's gone by. <laughs> oh, yeah, right, right. I got this new Full beanie. Full disclosure. Yeah. I, I put, I two, put the, <laughs> we're doing two in one day today. Yeah. I put the beanie on. But you look like we were next week. Yeah, yeah. Although I, I'd recognize that jacket. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I've been wearing this for a couple of days, and I have yeah, I really yeah. like it. Well, actually, this was in the dirty. It's one of those weird... Those are the dirty clothes. How often do you wear your clothes? Oh, man. You Um, you can be honest? That's one part of my life. I consider myself pretty good with chores is laundry. I'm I'm bad at laundry. You don't like laundry? No. So how many times will you wear those pants before you put them on? I wear these pants four to five to to six times. (laughs) And I go rotation. I do that with two two pairs of pants so no one notices. You feel better. I'll do it about two. It depends, obviously, but like these... Actually, these are new today, but I wore yesterday's pants three days. I don't do that with shirts, only pants. Yeah, well, I wear a t-shirt, so that helps. Yeah. So this has been worn once, but it was worn in a very, you know, nice situation where I didn't, it wasn't all day even. But yeah, I, I agree. I usually, ch- I always change, full disclosure, my, my underclothes. Oh, sure. Just so you know. I always do. And, and I typically shower almost every day. So. And socks. My laundry bin is just, is just underwear and socks. Now, and my was this part of the deal that these guys get, that we're getting into our underwear and everything? Well, you, got, you know, we're getting into the nitty-gritty. <laughs> we're getting into the nitty-gritty. Right, they're closer. Yeah, People, it's attracting. This is attractive conversation. Yeah, yeah, People yeah, are coming yeah, yeah. closer. Oh. Yeah. So we're, hey, guys. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Yankees? Yankees. I don't know, man. Well, we're going to do sacraments. I don't think we can get that to the Yankees. All right. So. Get us started, boss. Got a whiskey today, going here. Today we got a whiskey. We got a beer. Nice ride. Angels, whatever. Angels. Angels Envy. Is that what it's called? Angels Envy. Wow. That's mankind, isn't it? This what? The original envy of the angels was mankind. There you go. According to Milton. Yeah. 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 This I don't know if. Angels envision whiskey, though. You know, I feel they, like they couldn't. Well, not the not the fallen ones. It'd have to be a sanctified angel to do whiskey. I, I am very legitimately excited. Maybe we do an episode. I would love to talk about angelic beings. I believe in. I, I believe in angels. Um, yeah, yeah, we gotta believe it. Yeah. The archangels. The archangels. Archangel Michael, the archangel. Michael's in there. Gabriel. All right, we better focus here. We only got a little yeah, time. Yeah, all right, all right. So, so where, where are we going? I'm not going to worship angels. I want to worship the the one true God. What? Do, how do I do that? Do I just go by myself in the woods and say, Lord, which I've done in the past and it's been edifying for me? Do I say, Lord, I worship you now? Is that what we mean when I say the word worship? What is it? Yeah. What is, here's the question. Here's a question to start. What, what is, is the word? What does the word worship mean to you? Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter what it means to me, right? Well, what does it? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, no, I think we would distinguish between private worship and corporate worship. 
Private worship can be directed by scripture. Corporate worship, I think if it's good worship, is more than directed by scripture. It's actually regulated by scripture. Good worship. Good worship. And the reason for that is the scripture in Hebrews commands us not to forsake the assembly of God together, but which is in the context of worship there that he's talking about. So that if you're bound by God's law to participate in corporate or what I call what we call covenantal worship, then we must not do anything there that I can't go to the scripture and show you that we should do it. Again, it goes back to what we talked about, quote, last session, last week, part two, that someone is governing some someone is governing what we do when we do it, what we do in worship. And one of the regulative principles that, that is put upon those who govern the church is that we can't bind conscience where scripture hasn't bound conscience. And the rule of interpreting scripture to make sure that we don't do that is often come down as the regular principle, the idea that to preserve the exclusive Lordship of Christ, the church cannot prescribe anything in a way that is morally binding to you, except by the, the interpretive principle that it must be by good and necessary inference from scripture. So if you think about it, good worship, if you mean by that corporate worship, that is covenantal where we believe there is God who has authorized now his shepherds who've been authorized for God to be shepherds, to lead and guide and preach and teach and all that, do sacraments. We wanna make sure that the scripture prescribes what we do. And you can find that in Acts chapter two, verse 42, that foundation of the apostles where they, they, were, they prayed, both sung prayers and spoken prayers. That's one element of, of worship that we do. The second element is that there's the ministry of the word, um, preaching of the gospel, expositionally we believe. It's dividing the word of God and bringing it. You know what a good sermon is? It's reading the scripture and giving a people a sense as to what it means. That's basically what a sermon is. Before All we, this other fluff yeah. Yeah. is fluff. But a sermon, and that comes out of Nehemiah, by the way. That, that's exactly his words. Can but I, the third, yeah, so you yeah. have the word. So we're going in order. You're, 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 it's you're not bringing, an order, it's just four, four or five elements, depending on how you say it, I'll get to that. So prayers, yeah. sung and unsung. Um, word, Cor ministry of word. Yeah, this is all corporate. Just All that we're doing in a corporate, corporate context. Ministry of word, you know, and it comes in many forms. It comes in the sermon. It can come in the form of an absolution where we read scripture and apply it to your life for forgiveness. It can come in the form of coronation scripture. It can be, so we'll get into that later. So ministry of word, second. Third is the sacraments. And there's one of the debates in church history is what are the sacraments? How many are there? Protestants believe there are two. Uh, the Roman Catholics tend to believe there are seven, I believe it is. Um, so you have the sacraments, and then you have uh, absolution, confession of sin and absolution. Um, Absolving of that sin. And, yeah, and so you see all of those things, and then you actually have, some people could call it one anothering, but it's the giving. It's, it's actually making, in the words of the of the Acts, it's making all things in common for the benefit of expanding God's kingdom. You know, the resources needed to expand the kingdom, but also, most importantly, it's a it's a mercy gift. It's a gift to help those who are in need in the church. So you have these. Some people want to make sure that word and sacrament come together. 
So if you want to say, so one move, so again, one element is prayers, another is almsgiving, another is confession and absolution, another is word and sacrament, if you want to link those together, which there's a good reason to do that, or you could say there are five elements, which is word and sacrament. So five. Um, the reason you bring them together briefly is that it's, it's, it's a little bit of a un- theologically um, clear what you don't want to think of the sacraments and this idea of sacramentalism the the idea that God is uniquely and genuinely present in with and through the work of God in the ch in the church particularly in worship so in a sense you could say the ministry of the word is sacramental and that God is as prophet in presence through the word he's also in presence through the sacraments as priest, remembering sacrifice, sacrifice, etc., and even as king, insofar as this service is governed by Christ through those who are the shepherd leaders on behalf of Christ. So that's corporate worship. Private worship? There is no specific regulation in Scripture. Nice. It should be directed by Scripture, as in not contrary to. But yeah, so uh, if you ask me what is worship for me, probably the most personal and intimate worship is, well, you know, I'm gonna be in the Adirondacks. I might be smoking a cigar, might even be drinking a little, but I just read scripture, pray, sing, experience God's great creation, you know, meditate. Which one do you find more impactful on the life of a believer? It, I mean, maybe, it depends, can, how, you, it depends it, how you measure maybe it. Maybe it can be a both and. Yeah, yeah it's definitely a both like, and. I know we like that term, but I guess my, my, my point is what, I guess I, to be well, honest. Let me, honest, let me, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. You're no, right. I was saying, to be honest, I, I started off with privately worshiping before I corporately worshiped. Right. And I've always, I don't know how to describe it. it Later in life, I actually really do appreciate corporate worship more than I used to. Um, this kind of goes back. We're talking about church. It's for right. We're, ta we're still talking about Part the church. Part three, church. This goes back to the idea of church. What do you do at church? Right. The, the very focus of the church is its worship. No doubt. Worshiping God and mission and others. But Worshiping yeah. God. A cynic may argue from the outside. What? Where do these? You know. You, and, you, and you just said that you know they come from scripture, but. The movements, the order, the liturgy, if right. you will. Good. How did that all come about? Well, let me say to your first question, which could we can come back to it, but I want to make sure I don't miss it. If you're judging worship by my emotional experience, um, I think that's very dangerous because I'm, it, sh it can and should be emotion, but what kind of emotion? Should there be the emotion of lamentation and, and grief in worship? It is in the Bible. It is in Psalms. We have all sorts of Psalms that are lamentation Psalms. Grieving sin, grieving the, the struggles of the curse in this world, grieving the state of Israel, whatever. And, um, and so some worship spirituality will say, it's not good if I'm grieving. It's not good if I'm feeling sad. It's um, it always has to be happiness or joy or excitement or praise, whatever. But praise is good too. 
Thanksgiving's good too. You know, joy is good too. And I think different people, different cultures express that joy differently. We want to be careful that we don't assume one personality type as being better in worship than another. That'd be dangerous to say, here's someone that's very expressionate and finds oh, it very sure. easy to express themselves when in I, worship and raising hands and all the other things. When I first went to our church, um, day one, I think you said something. I was like, woo, yeah. And, and everyone like stood up and turned around and looked at and me. And I've I told said, you over and over, keep doing it. And I said, oh, we love people to do I that. said, oh, this is not. This is not. Well, I wish you wouldn't say that. This is not that kind of change. I hate it when you say that because that's then, not true. Since then, I've been sitting in yeah, my. Yeah. Yeah. So my point is that it would not be our position of our church. Um, we do have, you know, whatever we we and we do. We have, as you know, people raise hands, we clap, we, but it's it's not as you know maybe in other cultures. Um, we just got to be careful because I don't see scripture. I think scripture clearly wants it to be a whole body experience, but I don't think that, say, I have someone in my mind who's just not a kind of person that is real expressionate, but if you were to ask her, the person I'm thinking of, are you praising God? Do you feel joy? Are you experiencing the joy of the Lord when you're worshiping? She said, absolutely. When you sing this hymn, but you're not dancing and, and like the guy over here is dancing, are you experiencing the joy of the Lord? Yes, I am. I just, it's not me to do that. So it feel fake. It feel artificial. It feel contrived. I say, good. So worship in your body. Worship in your emotional uh, way of, of, of doing it. So we got to be careful about emotion um, as being sort of the key to good worship. Because it could turn into entertainment worship. You might be really bringing an idol there that says it's only good if whatever, you know. Um, so I think it has to be governed by the Word of God. Good worship is that worship which fulfills the purpose of worship, according to Scripture. What is that? Clearly it's doxology. Clearly it's, it's genuine edification. That Clearly it's reconciliation, renewing and reconciling us to God on a weekly basis. Um, you know, and you can speak, you know, the other things. And then the, all of these things that we're doing in worship become means towards an ends of bringing you into a more intimate relationship with Christ through the gospel. It's got to be gospel-centered worship. Can I, can I also tell and you... it can be missional and that it's drawing people to God who are not believers. Can I also say what I've learned through corporate worship and the how I... Maybe put it this way, how I've been influenced by corporate worship. I've seen how it's influenced my private worship. Um, the concept of... Where's I going with this? The, 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 just just how I how I in a life group, for example, you know, we, we have some banter and then we kind of go into kind of like an orchestrated kind of I don't want to say the word formulaic a template, if maybe that's a better word yeah. of, of approaching God. At first, I was very anti all of that because I said that is. You felt like it's wooden. It's that's putting yeah, that's right. that's putting my what I conceived a real authentic experience with my worship to God into some kind of cookie cutter solution, and then I saw the the whatever of that could just you can just as a human you can kind of get into the routine, going through the motions, 
But you're not really active. You're almost like on, on autopilot. You're not really serving God. You're right. just There's kind no of doubt. sitting a and... Kind of and nominal and, worship where you're just going through the motions. Going through the motions. And letting the liturgy do all the work and you're not really doing much. You're just kind yeah. of saying words. Yeah. That's I, very to true. To this day, I, I sometimes I, I do suffer through that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's... So to that, that's a great observation. And I think... I think every church has to discern. So one of the big principles of good worship is clearly it's 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 driven or it's structured in a covenantal way. It's, it's the God has given to us in His Word what good worship is. And again, I would say it's you know, but there's really two types of worship philosophies out there. One is what we could call the revival service. To take it back to that run to the altar and it's basically very driven by moving people to make some decision in order to be right with god you know whatever that is it could be to become a christian it could be to repent of a particular sin it could be to do something whatever but it's a very decision oriented and so I, I like to call those band and bible you know you have some music It'll probably start soft and meditative, but before you know it, the big band is starting to boom, starting to move you. Before you know it, you're in a pretty big frenzy, praising God, and and then very subtly, it's it's made, you're made to feel like, hey, the Holy Spirit's here because we're all in this emotional state. I think it's very dangerous. I mean, I, I've been to a Mandela event and seen the same emotional state, but were you worshiping God? You know, you can be at a concert and I get into that state. Is that really the Holy Spirit speaking to me? So we need, we don't want to confuse the power of say music and emotion and endorphins and all the stuff that's happened to you, which is not bad. I'm not saying it's a bad thing if that happens. We just got to be careful that we don't manipulate that into now's the time for you to make the decision. We would want to say something like, yeah, we, we want you to move. We do want you to make decisions as God would lead you to make decisions in a worship, but we want to be careful. We don't manipulate emotions to do it. In fact, I would even hesitate in saying, you know, maybe God's putting something on your heart. That's fine, you know, but but let's test it with the scripture. Let's let's pray about it. Let's make sure you've counted the cost. Do you understand the, what this decision's about? Um, now, God can use the revival service to bring people to Christ. He does, and He can use that service. God will accommodate through a donkey. He can do that. But the point is, is that that's one form of service. Ban, give me some scripture do an altar call or make it, you know, do a decision or whatever. I'm fine with doing that. So personally, I would not want that to substitute for covenantal worship. I'd love to do it on a Friday. Have this kind of experience where it's open to the community. They come, they hear, and I think of that service as getting you to the gospel. But then there's another kind of service that's much more historic, almost universally was practiced until probably the last I don't know, 150 years. And that's what we describe, some would call it a covenantal service. Another, you could describe it as a temple service. But that's a service with more or less four or five movements, depending on how you say it. Starts with praise and thanksgiving, moves you, I mean, and it's, and it's, and it's driven according to the logic of the gospel. So what we're doing in a covenantal service or a temple service is we're doing the gospel. Think of it like we're actually participating in the logic of the gospel. So what, 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 if someone were to come to Christ or someone to be renewed in Christ, first thing you'd do is you'd what? You'd, you'd be, you'd be, you know, you'd have a, a rev, let's say a, re, a renewed or, or a new 
experience of God and His greatness. So you start with this rediscovering God and all of His goodness and graces. That would move you as it did all the prophets. When, you, when they came into the, in the presence of God, what would they do when they get in the presence? They might praise Him at first. They say, oh my gosh, you are great. You are wonderful. You are, you are amazing. And then what would happen next? Fall to their knees they and hit the their knees and confess. Because when we get into the presence of the holy, if we're really in His presence, we're now becoming aware of our unholiness and how we are distant from Him. So there would be, that would move you to confession. And a gospel-believing church would take opportunity then to hear the confession, whether it's privately or whatever, but then pronounce absolution and give the terms of that absolution. How do you know you're forgiven? And you would remind people that if you put your hope and faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, and you've joined yourself to any gospel-believing church, so now you've brought yourself into this presence. I hear that every Sunday. Absolutely. Then you can be assured that God forgives you, and you don't need to be afraid of his condemnation anymore. You don't need to be afraid of his rejection anymore. It's a time of assurance. And it isn't amazing that we humans that's the need, second. To, we need to hear that to, to not even to counter, to, to, to bring that up. I mean, we need to hear that all the time. Amen. We, every week, we forget. I've got to be It's the same thing every week, but you know what? At, this, at the end of the day, and I shouldn't say it's, I don't mean it like to dismiss it. I mean, thank God it's the same thing every week because that's right. we, we serve a the same God. And, the same God. That's and, great. That's and, the great logic. I love that. And, and, and it's amazing how throughout the course of the week, if you will, you can kind of go off the rails and, and forget and you can... You think? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, amen. I, used, I used to raise an eyebrow at um, anything that was, I consider, ritualistic yeah. because of my weariness of it just becoming nominal of my weariness of it just becoming something to go through the motions. My heart wasn't in it. I saw worship was like some grandiose expression or I'm going to build this statue or I'm going to like paint for Jesus or I'm going to make a film that's going to shape the world for Jesus rather than just like getting on my knee and say, you are Lord um, every week. So, so I think that yeah. it's so, yeah. So let me so I'm, I'm turning. Yeah. yeah, I'm turning. Well, I want to get to this liturgy. But, but before you do, so you got the praise, you've got the confession, sin, absolution. Now you're going to go here again, uh, I would hope, a gospel-centered, Christ-centered sermon. One that takes the scripture, puts it in the context of redemptive history, that gets you onto the Emmaus road, that gets you to Christ. When you, you're brought then, every sermon I think should bring you to Christ, which is why we believe that we should practice weekly communion. We think communion is a essential element of covenantal worship. And think about it. I know as a pastor who preaches all the time, knowing that I'm bringing these people this communion, it's very hard to preach a sermon that's moralistic or, or legalistic. I'm going to bring them to the law, but the law is going to convict me of sin. It's going to direct me to Christ. And then we're going to renew that, that reunion with Christ and the forgiveness of sins through the sacrament. So you have praise, confession, absolution, word, sacrament. Then, and, and part of that sacrament is both the communion of the saints and bringing their alms together and making things in common to make sure that everyone there, you know, even just in a practical sense, there's some people sitting in that pew that can't pay for the cost of that seat. There are other people sitting in that pew that can pray for 10, 10 seats. 
And Paul says that exact thing in Corinthians 8, where he says, some have too much, but they won't have too much. Some have too little, but they'll have enough because we share all things in common. And that's what that giving is about. We never want people to give under compulsion. In fact, we always say, only give if you can give cheerfully. It is an act of worship. Otherwise, don't give because it's not a right gift. I want to talk about that later, bro. Yeah, and then, then we'll go to, then we call it coronation and benediction. So those, but think about that, the logic of the gospel, you're actually now doing the gospel and renewing it. It's a renewal service. And you could be an unbeliever there and everything's done with the reality that there are unbelievers in our service every week. And there are, we're thankful for that. That people come, they're seeking. We make it very comfortable for them to be there. We think they're supposed to be there. We put prayers in the bulletin for them to think about. But the key is, is we're respecting them and their conscience. We're not going to push you to become a Christian. God's big. He can get you there. You're not going to have them raise their hand at the so end. So come and taste and see that the Lord is good in a sense. You might not eat it yet, but you can taste it. And um, that's the way we think of that. And so with that in mind, now the question, so those are the four, quote, five movements of worship. I think every good worship has those five movements. But do you use a scripted liturgy? Do you use an unscripted liturgy? You're always going to have a liturgy. Liturgy is just the, the habits, the habitation of how we do what we're doing. There's it can be informal, liturgy it can in be life. formal. There's liturgy in drinking a beer with a friend. Yeah. All of life, there's a liturgy. You're right. Yeah. But in this case, worship liturgy, it's those four movements that I want to direct the service. Not, so I would say high church what I mean by that is a church that really understands and believes that Christ is really present in, with, and through this sacramental event that we call the worship of God. He makes it a high church because he's present. It, and whether you are low liturgy or high liturgy is just another question. And it has to do with the vernacular of the people. You know, the other thing about worship is it's dialogical covenant worship. That means God speaks, we respond. So the intent of a liturgy written is to just help the congregation have a voice. Instead of being an, a, a, we don't think good worship is me being an audience or a spectator. I'm not coming to an event to be entertained. I'm actually coming to an event to do something, which is to worship God myself. So the liturgy can be a help to do that, or it can be a hindrance, the way you described earlier. Now, that's the, that gets it on the table. Now go after it. It's your, it's your, it's your show here. Someone off, off camera. You, no, you were mentioning. Uh, I'm going to repeat your question just so. You mentioned taste, taste, taste and see. Taste and see, yeah. Okay, but. Taste and see. In your church, do you distribute Eucharist? Yep. Real quick. Every week. The question is, every week do we uh, distribute the but Eucharist? We will, we will what's called fence the table. We'll, the table. We call it fencing the table. But basically, remember, there's also Christ the King. And he's there, you know, and, and, and he knows those who are genuinely partaking of Christ or not. We wouldn't want to give people a false assurance. So we will say to people, this is a table for those who put their hope and faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, who've joined themselves to any gospel-believing church. It's not a Presbyterian table. And, um, and that's our way of saying, you know, saying this is who this is rightfully for. And then we always, as you know, say, but hey, you have a spiritual question, you have something you want to talk about, you know, let's go have a beer, let's go have a coffee, let's talk. We have a way for them to communicate that to us through, you know, our opportunity. So there's still an invitation 
but we but the communion we would say but yeah but we wouldn't want you to violate your own conscience and do something that you don't really believe but we're glad you're here you're supposed to be here we intended for you to be here this is the right thing for you to do if you're looking for god go to a worship service so let me ask you that's interesting and if they were to come up we don't have the power of the sword or the temporal power so let's say i do that and a person comes up who hadn't received christ but they come up anyway we would give it to them we're not going to take it away from them. That's that's between them and God now. We've already we've given the, the instructions that they needed to discern whether or not they should come or not. I want to talk about sacraments. And I want to talk about Holy Communion. And I also want to talk about something else. But I'm going to leave this something else to a little later because this that's definitely going to be controversial. Um, yeah. What? So I to me there essentially there are two schools of thoughts with communion. One is that it's an it's a way to remember Jesus. Jesus said, take this in memory of me, uh, eat this in memory of me. Um, the other is that their communion is a, is a strong word. If you think of that word, if we really, we take, we, we take it for granted, the word communion, but communion means to, to, to share, you know, I, I think that the other, the other, yeah. the other way we can, the only closest other thing is, is in my opinion, intercourse, uh, uh intercourse. intercourse of like that kind of communion um so the idea is is it's metaphorically act, speaking metaphorically yeah um i'm not trying to get too randy on sunday no i'm trying to say um oh gosh you got uh, yourself in a mess now i bro. got myself in a mess yeah put, Go my for it. in my mouth no the con- so, so going back there there are two ways is the idea is like it's a a symbol it's a way no, to no, honor it's a good metaphor honestly the other is that it's some kind of active participation it's some kind right. of like special event. Um, so what, so, what, what, what's, so there's a good, there's some. What do you think about all that? So again, I will give you a bias from a, my Protestant reform perspective, but just to lay it on the table, um, there's generally three positions on, the, the question is really comes down to in what sense is Christ present in, with and through a sacrament? Or another way of saying is, to what degree is their grace conferred through the sacraments? And when the, we say sacrament, before we even go there, yeah. we mean what? What's a sacrament? Well, let's just stick with the Protestant view right now and speak of it in terms of, we, we will conclude it's there's two. There's baptism, and we need to talk about that, and there's the Lord's Supper. Now here's, so what is a sacrament biblically? There's four, basically, four um, rules that, that you see in scripture that makes it a sacrament. One is it's gotta be by a, what's called immediate institution of Christ. We need to be able to go and Christ himself would have instituted it as a sacrament. We see the baptism of Christ and then in the great commission go therefore make disciples by baptizing them. So it was instituted by Christ. The Lord's Supper, same thing. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, and etc. And then when we get to the apostles, we see every time they worshiped in Acts, they're breaking bread together. So we don't think of it as a secondary thing. It's we communion, the Lord's Supper is, we think, an ordinary part of covenantal worship. So the, the first rule is immediate divine institution. God himself, by positive institution, put it in place. It's not a human idea. Two, it involves a sign. What's a sign? The sign is some outward sim- symbol, something 
that represents some inward reality. It's a sign that represents an inner reality, or at least goal if you're one of the other views I'll tell you about. So yeah, so you think of baptism, according to Peter and according to Paul in the New Testament, the water is taken from the judgment ordeal of the red flood, the red, the red sea, the I mean, That sounds a little metaphoric. Well, it is right now. I'm getting there. It's a sign. A sign. And it's, you're remembering that all people must pass through a judgment ordeal. That judgment ordeal is often symbolized by the knife, the cutting ceremony of the, of the Old Testament and circumcision. That was a cutting ceremony, a judgment ceremony, or, and it was applied to sacrifice, or you could think of water. Both were part of the Old Testament. You had, you would be sprinkled with water. You would participate in a blood sacrifice. Um, so water of baptism represents that all people everywhere will pass through God's judgment. Now the question is, how do you pass? In the name of our covenant executor, if you want to call him that, Christ, Moses was a type of Christ before, we can pass through with a, a covenant executor who will satisfy the terms of the covenant for us so that we can pass out of that water without being scathed by God's judgment. We're actually, in some ways, born again. We go through the judgment and judgment. We pass through that judgment in our covenant executor's uh, representation into everlasting life. We call that grace. Hold it. Then you've got the, uh, the Lord's Supper, which the signs are what? The bread and the wine. We know from Christ what those are meant to bring us to, right? It's meant to remind us and remember Christ's body and blood and the way in which that was substituted for our body and blood on the cross. So notice both signs are bringing you to the gospel. So the second is it's got to be immediate institution. It's got to be a sign. There has to be something physical happening and you participate in it physically. That's key. Back in this day of what we just been through, you got to do physical. You got to chomp on the bread. The third is called a seal. And I use the seal in, a, in, a, in the way that in the ancient, if you were given a seal, it's to give you an identity. Like if a king would seal something that he had decreed, he would put his identity and authority upon it. So you're getting a seal, which means the child or the person being baptized is being sealed or given the identity as a Christian. You are now a child of God. You belong to the king. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. There's a seal of you've been forgiven and you've been covered by the blood of Christ. It's, a, it's an identity statement. And then the fourth is it's gotta be a means of grace. Now this is, this is the, this would be both Catholic, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Reformed, and even many others. It's the idea that grace is conferred through it, that that's the key. That there's actually, that God is not just watching us do it, he is actually participating in, with, and through the sacraments to confer real grace into our lives. But not infallibly, it's not magic, it's not necessarily immediate, it can be gradual. But there is a means of grace and we receive it by faith alone. It's, it's received properly by faith alone. That's the Protestant view. Now, there are three views. One would say Christ is immediately present 
in the transformation of the bread and wine or in the transformation of the water to become You're holy water. Actually consuming his body. That there's well in the, in the Lord's Supper you'd be that that bread and wine is transformed into the organic matter of Christ's body. In the mystery of that union. That's one view, which is particularly the Roman and Eastern Orthodox view. Okay, the other view on the other extreme is Christ isn't really present there. It's meant to be a memorial. You're remembering something. It's, it can be a witness to the world. It can be a good, it's something that will maybe encourage us and edify us to remember Christ and to rededicate ourselves to Christ, however you want to talk about it. But we don't think there's anything mystery going on there beyond the fact that it's done. And it's then the not third, like taking a vitamin. And then the third, just get it on the table again. I like to try to get them all there, then you can go at it. The third view is more the Lutheran view, though they would say it, they'd call it consubstantiation, or the more Reformed Presbyterian view, um, or even Anglican view, which would talk about it as a spiritual presence, whereas real presence, but the mystery is that Christ's body is united to the body, the, the local body of Christ, to become the living presence of God, transacted by the spiritual presence of the Holy Spirit. Those are the three views. Immediate present, no presence, um, uh, spiritual presence. Now, here's where I know my Catholic brothers will take issue with us a little bit, but, but, um, but here's where, and they are brothers, um, we would say, Calvin said, for instance, that the problem with the Roman Catholic Church was it wasn't sacramental enough. Because what he complained of in the reformers was that they injected into this space between the congregants and the sacraments, they injected into it a Roman culture, the Roman flesh. In other words, it became the flesh of, you know, the Italian or the, uh, you know, the Latin flesh, if you will. And Calvin and the reformers believe that one of the main important things about the Lord's Supper is that it be in the vernacular of the people. In other words, they were opposed to any liturgy or anything in the service that did not use the common language, for instance. Everything that be done in a Protestant service would be that common Latin language. Latin versus Italian. It would Italian. never be a language that came from somewhere else. Gotcha. Um, it would be in the common flesh, the socio-cultural flesh of the people. Do it in a manner that represents their flesh. Because the point for us is that the mystery is that Christ conjoins himself by the Spirit to the very flesh of the people for they become now, what? The body of Christ the very temple presence of God in the midst of us. And so if in the way that I like to put it in the book, I have written a book on it called a baptism that saves, you would say that if the Baptists don't see it as a means of grace, the Catholics would see it as a, uh, 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 what, I, what I, I just blanked here, as the agent of grace, the sacraments themselves materially, they become the agent of grace. We see it as a means of grace, as in it's, it's not that anything magical happens to the material signs. And it's not that there's no spiritual relation between the sign and the thing signified. We think there is with the Catholics. So we are sort of right there in the middle of Catholics and Baptists who would say no presence, immediate presence in, in the actual elements themselves. We say spiritual presence, real, efficacious, transformative still but there now so 
Well, th that would be a Catholic view, transubstantiation. Yeah. Yeah, Catholics are transubstantiation. Well, consubstantiation is a more Aristotelian sort of way of describing, but Calvin and Luther later in their life agreed that they agreed. Um, we're spiritual transformation, if you will. Um, we're consubstantiation is is more of a spatial term that there's a space in which God inhabits in the sacraments that, that Luther would talk about. We would just simply say it's, it's, but here's the thing that Calvin said, and I can actually quote him, I think, if I remember. So Calvin came to the scene, and I'm just speaking to Calvin, which I think Luther would more or less agree. Lutheranism and Calvinism are very close on this. In fact, again, some think they really are saying the same thing. Um, the uh, Calvin came along and said, no, the problem with the Catholics are they're not sacramental enough. And you go, what do you mean? Because, you know, it comes with all this stuff. He said, no, because they actually injected into the space between us and God, they injected Romanism. Or, 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 th or whatever. You say, no, hold on, let me finish this. And that was their big beef, is that they, it, it was removed from the flesh of the people a little bit. Um, and what Calvin said in response to that, and I quote, there is no extent of space that separates Christ from the body of Christ in the context of the Lord's Supper and our sacramental union with Christ. No extent of space, it's, a, it's that close. There's nothing that comes between us. So if the epicenter of the kingdom of God for the Catholic Church is Rome, if the epicenter of the kingdom of God is Constantinople for the Eastern Orthodox, if, and you could go on through all these other, you know, Constantinople, whatever, um, we would say that no, the epicenter is the heavenly church of which we all partake of that. And that heavenly church take, manifests itself on multiple forms, forms meaning flesh, social cultural flesh, and that each in each individual congregation's social cultural flesh is immediately acted upon by Christ through the spiritual union, and we see that in Roman and and, and that's that's what we see that Christ is saying in uh, John chapter 14 and 15, where he speaks of it's better that I ascend into heaven, greater things will you do, and he begins to talk about this temple house of God that's in multiple places at the same time where every place where the covenantal worship service is being practiced becomes an epicenter of the kingdom of God. So you could say in our spirituality, even though I could say it about the Catholic Church too, but I would say it this way out of the Calvinism, that every Sunday Christ has an address. You can go and participate with him really in a way you can't in your closet, you can't at your home, you can't at the Starbucks. There is a unique and specific intimacy of union that takes place in corporate worship under the apostolic design of course that's important so that's why I'd say to you that if you were going back to your original what would be more important um, just remember that for about 1500 years people didn't have a Bible the only way they got the Bible is when it was read from those who had the original scripts to read it from so clearly you can be sustained and you could have your own worship service, of course, as you've memorized scripture or as you do the thing. But, but I would say the most important thing we do as Christians is we attend worship, corporate worship every Sunday. You know, uh, my opinion is what you, what you just said, yep. the most important thing. Yep. And then one might ask, why is it the most important? Yep. And you mentioned a word like 
transubstantiation? Well, that's just one okay. word that describes the way that Christ is present in the communion. Okay, but transfiguration mm. is what the Catholics do. Uh, and that is... Well, I could talk to you later about that. Transfig transfiguration is an event where Christ became formed. Okay, so that, well, that's what you're saying. You're saying... Nah, it's a little different from trans... Yeah, no, just to be no, honest. No, no, I'm saying, but that's one end... Mm -hmm. And you said okay. the Baptist on the other end. But Transfiguration is, to me, the, pretty much the basis of the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. What's the most important part of it? Yeah. Because you, know, you can sit there, but until the Transfiguration occurs, yeah. you're just basically sitting there. Yeah, well, well, can, can I talk? Yeah, I, I think trans. I would beg to differ that what the Catholics believe is not Transfiguration at the Lord's Table. That was an event that took place in his ministry where he became a form to the apostles. Well, when, when you're but it's but it's related, I guess you could say that. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. And it's the material. See, we all be, we yeah we believe that we're the mystery is the mystical union of Christ to the actual. Where is the body of Christ? Maybe that's the good way to put it. Where is Christ's body in communion? I'm going to say it's in the bodies of the people sitting in the congregation, as that has been infused with God's presence and grace through the Holy Spirit, through the sign. So think about it this way. If I were driving down the street and I saw a sign, Yale New Haven Hospital, is that the hospital? No. The sign's not the hospital. But the sign is a means by which I now move to the hospital, if you will. And it's in the mystery of that moving into the hospital, the sign moved me there, but it's not the hospital. The presence of Christ is not the sign, It's, but there is a sign. The presence of Christ is in the life of the body of Christ. There's a reason why Paul over and over again equates, and I'm thinking Ephesians 2, verses 11 and following, you can go back and read it if you're listening. And right there, we, this body of Christ that's called the church, is also called the temple of God, is also called the dwelling place of God, and it's called the body of Christ. The body of Christ is Christ's presence, really. But the body, see what we're doing, to put it in maybe more sociological terms, there, if the covenant, which is that contract that God gives us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, gives form to Christ through all the elements of worship, etc. Prophet, priest, and king, all that that's coming through the service. The people give flesh to Christ in that mystery of communion with Christ by the Spirit. Now, I've, I've been talking a lot too much here, but I had to get it all out. So take, take, take it away, Mr. Layman. What the heck is going on? We have, we have two people off screen. One's, one's a Catholic, and you I'm, are, I'm not you, sure you what's does, going on. But I am a lapsed Catholic. A what? A lapsed Catholic. A lapsed Catholic. Okay. I a lapsed Catholic. To the extent that I identify with really, with my age, it was pre-Vatican Yeah. I mean, I really, yeah. I really could not. What we're arguing here, sorry to interrupt, what we're arguing here, folks, for those listening at home, we're arguing when you receive Holy Communion, what is actually happening? Is it a, is it you are actually digesting the flesh of Christ 
in that Physically. given moment? Is it a sign, the way Preston just highlighted, assigned to a hospital and the real communion is with the body of believers? Or is it just a way that we pour out a beer for our dead And the homies? importance of that is that's why um, you can't do it by yourself now. You could... Uh, for, now, for I politely disagree there. Well, hold on, no, hold on, hold on, okay. hold on. Not, yeah. not in a way where you can be assured that Christ is present. In other words, if, if you were to put it this way, if well, you were to come you, you have in, a somebody, high view of the church. Well, I have a, that, well, that, 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 I, that, that, that you're saying that the only way to truly receive Christ's presence is to be in the body of a believer. You can't decapitate Christ by taking the covenant or gospel out of it. You can't uh, de whatever. If map. I was shipwrecked on an island, I would still. Yes, and God can accommodate you. I'm not saying he can't be there. I'm not, and we're, 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 I'm also talking extraordinary situations. Yeah, exactly, in extraordinary situations, you can be but anywhere. It's, I, I, but it, it gets, da- I politely believe it gets a little dangerous when you say, "Well, this or that." For example, I know I'm probably alone in this. No, you're I want, probably, no, I want, you're, no. Most I, people, agree I want to get baptized one more time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's you're been, definitely alone. It's been, it's. Uh, I think it's been twice in my life I've been baptized. I want to do it once more. And let me, let me explain yeah, like, why. We need to get I would like thing. to explain why. Yeah. Um, the first time I was a baby, had no idea what the heck was going on, and I do think that that was thank praise God that. that so that, how that do you happened. know you were baptized as a baby? Um, let's be, let me go on. Okay. Uh, number two, I I was peer pressured into being baptized. I was at a very. So you get a, you had a second baptism. You're saying second baptism. Oh man, you we want all, three now. I know. I want a third. I want the third one. I want it to be I legit. And, and well, I, let's and keep I think it going. so. My dumb question of the day is: If we have communion every single week, why are we not getting baptized every single week? Well, there's a good reason. Uh, you know, why, I don't know of a church that would. Most churches historically would not do what you wanted to do. If you asked me to do it, I wouldn't do it. As a recommitment. Yeah. Well, you can recommit, but that's what the Lord's Supper's for. See, so the answer to your question is: Just as in the Old Testament, there was what we'd call a. a initiation rites, how you begin the journey of Christ or, or with God, or you could even call it a converting ordinance. It's what meant to convert you. Yeah. And then you have a renewing or confirming ordinance. Now you had that in the Old Testament. You had circumcision in a context of male representation. It, it meant that all children were being circumcised. And that's a thing of the past now. But anyway, that was what was going on. And it would be odd if Paul makes the case like he does in Colossians chapter two that baptism means the same thing as circumcision, and that and yet they want to distinguish from the priestly priesthood of the Old Testament, so they did baptism instead of circumcision. Remember that's to that's clarify, Paul's argument. To clarify that you're saying that circum that both that you're saying that there's a distinction the between the very, mark. Yeah, the because Bible, circumcision is a mark. Well, of Well, it's covenant. more than that. It's a means of grace. It was everything. It was a sacrament. Circumcision well, but was a sacrament. It is a very apparent mark. And where, whereas, yeah, yeah that uh, sense, if that's what you want to talk about. Whereas, um, uh, uh, baptism, you have to ask if you're baptized. Well, but, oh. but, but here's the thing. It's still a mark because you had water put on you. Sure. Um, now, here's the thing. One's a converting ordinance. Its function is to initiate your journey with Christ. And we believe confer grace. But that grace is, remember, now, this emphasis about the body of Christ, there are people all the time that we're on a main street here in town. People will walk by, oh, I have a child. I need my child to be baptized. I don't go to church. They walk in and say, hey, pastor, I want my child to be baptized. I'll say, well, you know, we're going to have to talk. Can we talk? We get together and I'll explain to them that baptism isn't magic. And the efficacy of baptism is tied 
to this child being raised and participating in that communion of Christ that's being executed through the body of Christ. To not be a member and committed to that church, you know, is to not have the power of baptism. But you as the doctor... The very purpose of baptism is to engraft you into the body of Christ, where the power is. But the reason, one could argue, is that the reason why you want to have an infant baptized is because, heaven forbid, that they die prematurely. And it's not... and, and, And I would say that's a wrong reason to do it. If you think baptism... If you think baptism is, is just a ticket that, to heaven, see baptism assumes that it's engrafting you into a body of Christ where all the means of grace are present. You could be baptized, but if you have no word, are you going to be a Christian? If you're baptized, you have no prophet or king in Christ overseeing you, disciplining you, as we've talked about, caring for you, looking after you. So the point is, baptism is meant to bring you into the presence of salvation, but the deal isn't sealed until this child will raise up to a place one day where they are self-aware to the degree that they understand their original sin and that they need a savior so and why they will not make get what we call a credible profession of faith before you can come to their confirmation oh man, i don't table. want to throw the our denomination under the bus but why so then why not get baptized when you're a rational conscious person because the reason why i want to get baptized a third time is not because i think it's invalid of it because now i feel like i'm ready the first time but you're making baptism into the Lord's Supper. Yeah. You're making baptism into the Lord's Supper. We have a sacrament exactly for that. We do it every week where you, again, every week you are confirmed and you're as saying a believer. baptism is the start of the journey. One's a renewal. You're saying, I want a renewal. I need to be baptized. No, you need to go to the Lord's table and the, and the whole worship of God to be renewed. So you have a, something that we believe God, we call it covenant children and it's the idea that God enters into a covenant with those children whom he in his divine decree and providence birthed into the life of the church and membership. He did that because his parents were a member of the church. So we believe that child is already at birth set apart from other people. That child has, God did something explicitly when he decreed that this child be born into the life of the church through just even one of their parents being a member of the church. So we'll, in our church, in most churches that are of the tradition, until recently when everything went crazy, you would never baptize a child if you believed in infant baptism unless there was at least one, mem- one parent who was a member in good standing in that church. Why? Because the efficacy, the power of baptism is not in the event. It's in what the event accomplishes by engrafting you into the body of Christ where you have the full means of grace available to you, which will mature where you will be brought to a personal profession. You don't think of faith. it's about the event? It's it is, but it's not but it's not the event in itself. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Yeah, there's something going on in the event. As I said, he's Can present. I can, can I tell you why when what led me and, and this yeah. is with all due respect, this is nothing yeah. everything you said to Bro, me. Well, this is a place for questions. You don't have to apologize. Well, well I I love it. I kept my lips tight and I let you get it out because <laughs> there are, yeah, um, <laughs> That's what I want. yeah there because a lot of that wouldn't mean anything to me what what got me believing if I politely may that there is something to sacraments was the concept that physical actions have spiritual consequences I agree in other words that's a wh- sign signified thing you're going on there right when I give you the finger 
That's just raising a finger. I didn't say which one. I could have given. I could have given you. I could have given you. I said. I said. Flipping the bird. No, I said that. that Actually, he flipped a. He flipped a pinky. So I guess he's covered. See assumptions, right? Um, the pinky means fancy. He's rolling today, man. I don't know. Listen, listen. Keep going. I'm listening. I was saying physical actions have spiritual consequences. Um, let's just, when, when you... But not necessarily, right? They could, they I, might not. I, I politely argue every physical action well, has spiritual consequences. Well, we would say only when received by faith can the sacraments become even, efficacious. Even, even if you are mentally handicapped and you do yeah. and, and do not have yeah. the... So the physical... Ca- the but physicality, that's the faith of the parents bringing your child. Of, the physicality of... I'll get there. The, the physical action of me receiving the communion in one hand is just me putting a wafer and digesting the calories. But the, the, the spiritual consequence is me having a spiritual event that we might not understand and that's why I raise an eyebrow at all the theologians say well it's this way it's that way I think it's so much beyond human understanding that one day when we get to the next life we will understand so you've said a lot of things that I agree with and then come to a conclusion that I don't I definitely think it's a mystery yes so agree yeah I definitely think there is in the words of our confession you know there is a spiritual relation which means efficacious power if you will there's a spiritual relationship between the sign, the water of baptism, and the thing signified and grafting you into the body of Christ, wherein you have full access and rights to the, to the means of grace. There is, what baptism did or does is it enters you into the living presence of Christ vis-a-vis the body of Christ. But it's a transaction that doesn't happen outside of the body of Christ is my point. That's the whole point of it. It's an ingra- you are actually becoming a member of the church when you were baptized. And you have all the rights and privileges of that. But hold it. And even though you could say, let's just say for a moment, I'm not going to judge your baptisms, but let's just say that the church, as long as it's a true church, it could be an unhealthy church. It could be a real unhealthy church. But if the elements of the church is there, we believe that it's a true baptism. And to us... If that, if however in the course of your life you came to saving faith as you have, we would say it worked. God made a promise, a covenanted promise with you and your parents when you became baptized. It's not dependent on the person who baptized you, I hope, because you're screwed if it were me, you know, because I'm a sinner like anybody. It's dependent on God's covenant with his church. And so I agree with that's you. why, for instance, People said, Pastor, would you, could you baptize my children? And I'd like to do it in a lake or in a river. Let's say I can't. Unless we convene an open meeting of the church at the river. And it's, an, it's, it's in other words, you're joining, you're being baptized by the church, not me. But it's not Preston who's baptized. I just wonder what John the Baptist would think to all of this. I think he would absolutely agree. I think he would 100% disagree. Yeah, that's I think where we'd that have to go at. I, 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 I agree that it ought to be in the body of Christ. Well, first of all, remember John. It's also baptism. like how we do, we also let's real yeah. quick. I like to, talk about. Um, it is a baptism that's distinguished from post. Christ baptism in the scripture, you but know he, that. But he was also doing that on the brink of society. He was he was baptized. And it was not a covenantal service. It was not. That's why it's distinguished from Christ. But Christ baptism is going to be instituted. But Christ 
requested John, not a Pharisee, to baptize him. What's the point? The First point, of all, God He, he, he requested a man wild in the woods well, to do let it. Let me just, he didn't request. John was sent by God as, a, as the last of the Old Testament prophets. Yeah. Okay, and he was the prophet that was foretold, that would foresee mm -hmm. and be the forerunner preparing the way of the Messiah. And in that preparation, he used baptism as a way to call people to repentance. And if you go read the passage I read last night, remember I made an emphasis that in our compline, yeah. the very baptism of John was calling to repentance and forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ comes, this is getting really heavy, but Christ comes to try to say it really quick and simple, he came now representing all humanity being baptized. He became, he was submitting himself for us to the baptism of John in repentance and in solidarity with us. And then John says, but there is a baptism that's coming that's not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit. Pentecost. Now, read John's gospel. Just keep reading John's gospel. Where is that Holy Spirit? How is it gonna come to us? He's gonna make it very clear in John 21 that it's, now he says, just as the Father sent me, he says this to the 12, not to the world, to the 12, just as the Father sent me, I send you. And how did God send you? According to John's gospel, he sent Christ to become the temple of God. So now I send you to become the temple of God. And what does he do? He gives them the temple benediction. He blesses them. He then breathes the spirit of God into them. And he gives them the power to remit sins. And now that power is being communicated in, with, and through the apostles and according to Ephesians 2, the foundation of the apostles now is transmitted in succession to the church, of which the church now is baptizing in the apostolic spirit, or, or according to the apostolic succession, the church in succession of the apostles and their foundation is baptizing on behalf of Christ, with Christ as the cornerstone. I'm quoting Ephesians 2 there. So I would say that yes, John absolutely understood that his baptism was a preparation for Christ, Christ's baptism in solidarity with us, and now Christ passes that baptism on to the church through the apostles, of which now there's only one baptism, and he says that, one baptism. Not two, not three, one baptism, one Lord, etc. So if Christ was present at your, the question is, was Christ present when you were baptized as a child? If so, then you're baptized. And that and, is why I want it a third time. Well, what we would say is Christ is present. If the, It's not based on your credentials, but listen, it's, this is really important. It's not based on your credentials, brother. You're saved by I'm grace. I'm not saying it is. Well, I, I, want, I want to be baptized saying, by somebody I, who's I qualified to, to baptize. Yeah. I want someone to diagnose me and well, give me the medicine. Well, that's what happened when you were admitted to the Lord's Supper. That's exactly what happened. What happened when you came to our church? Did we not examine you? When I passed away and they said, hey, You've been Preston baptized. said it was cool. You were baptized because you're, you're not going to say Preston because Preston doesn't baptize. Only the Church of Jesus Christ baptized. I do it in office under his under the authority of succession I from the apostles, yes. all that stuff. So that you're not, it's not a personality show. So don't even go there. It's not about you ultimately. It's about the question's not you. It's did God by his grace bring you into the life of the church wherein you were given the sign and seal and means of grace of, of holy baptism as that is mediated through the life of the church? And the answer is yes, because we then would, we had a big debate. 
as a Protestant, that's been a debate. Is the Catholic Church a true church? Okay? No, there's some Protestants who say no. And there's some Catholics who are going to say we're not, well, Catholics would say Protestants aren't a true church. They're in the kingdom of God, but they're not a true church. And so we have a little disagreement. But we, in our tradition at least, most of us in our tradition, believe that the Catholic Church is a true church, even if humbly we disagree with some things. And therefore you were baptized because you were part of a, a gospel-believing church. And you were baptized so that we would not re-baptize you, but we would certainly agree with your spirit that every week we want to be renewed. Every week we want to be confirmed again. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really articulate because I want to make sure that it's it's legitimate. It, it, it so, know, what, so the first one was the second. What, what was the second one? Second one was definitely illegitimate in my opinion. It was it was. Um, <laughs> well, I'd agree because you already had a baptism. So well, no, even the manner. I mean, well, yeah. it was from a non-denominational place, yeah, and it yeah, was. Yeah. My gosh, it was, it but was, my point is, you are baptized. Yeah. Don't confuse though, and this is what happens. There's one's, uh, what do we call it? A converting What about ordinance. being baptized by the Holy Spirit? Well, I think that happens when you become a Christian. Every Christian gets I have baptized friend, by the Holy Spirit. I, I, or you wouldn't I be know, a Christian. You I would be, wild you have to be born again, right? I have wild friends who, who, who consider that there's a second baptism. I know. And that is a baptism through fire. I know. And that's a baptism that's through a the Holy Spirit. That's a historic position. And that is. That's called and that, Wesleyanism, and that, and that is speaking in tongues. That's Wesleyanism. That's that a Christo. That's all that stuff. We got to wrap it up. We're we got to wrap it up. Rails. But, but so we agree on a couple Woo! of things. Okay, okay, was this a good one? Well, we had some I, fun you know, no, today. Well, finally, you know, we're, we're, we're pitting all the nominations against each other. And but then we're realizing we're, we are, we do worship. You know, the God. thing, the, the way to, to maybe end in a gracious way here for all, for these all, we acknowledge they're, they're really back. We've been talking a lot about the Reformation and Catholics and the Orthodox, etc. One of, one of the things we didn't like, humbly, about the Catholic Church was sort of this spiritual imperialism that where there was no room for you to disagree with the church and still be in the church. So we all lament denominationalism. I think in heaven there will not be denominationalism. But this side of heaven, denominationalism is better than no denomination because one denomination would then assert itself as the only denomination one ring to rule them all and we'd feel like that's that's not making room for the real fallibility of the church in this present age where we we don't think any church is infallible every church is fallible so where there are matters of conscience that we disagree with denominationalism does a good service because it made room for you to disagree without being outside of the body of Christ and not brothers and sisters so we believe we are brothers and sisters with the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, Lutheranism, you know, Episcopalian, whatever. And it's kind of like we're, there's unity at different concentric circle levels. You're most experiencing unity in a common congregation at a local level where you're partaking of the flesh of Christ in the fullest way you can. Sharing each other's gifts, giving each other, participating, accountability, that's the most intimate unity that we have as a local church. That's why when there's a church schism in the local church, it hurts gillions of times more than in the universal church. Sure. But we do believe that they're then another level of, of, of church where we're all organic. We're still organically united each other, but now it's not as visible. It's not as intimately fleshed out. So I do share communion with other denominations and believers. 
to the degree that we agree together, we probably have more. So there's a church in town that's And great. that's the thing we should really end with yeah. is that we honestly probably like agree 95% even even with yeah. with every denomination yeah. I believe agrees 95% of the ways it's the that's 5% right. that I believe that the devil the enemy yeah. of our souls wants to yeah. make big And those things. are important. We we don't want to make I'm not it, saying that, I'm not dismissing those are. things. Um but, but given the reality that we're going to spend eternity without So it's a beautiful saying that I'm a part of an association here called Bridges of Hope eight different denominations, eight different social cultural groups, somewhat at least identify with those denominations here. Some are different ethnicities, etc. But we share, you know, one's Baptist, one's non-denomination, you know, there's different kinds, but we share in the Nicene Creed. We share, and even more than the Nicene Creed, we share in what's now called more of a gospel-centered church. It's want to be grace-centered, and we want to be focused on, you know, the the, the gospel, which is that we're saved by grace through faith alone, not of works, etc. So we share a lot together, and we can do a lot together. But one thing we don't want to do together is probably church government. We don't want to do together probably a worship service where we have some differing, pretty strong differences of what a worship service should look like. And but we allow each other to 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 follow their conscience, but in a way that we can still be one. You know, and so. I think a lot of people get in the trap of it's either or. No, it can be a little both and. We can be not as unified as we are, say, at CPC, from a standpoint of really experiencing that unity. But we are one still, and we can do certain things together, like mercy projects in our city, and for the glory of God and for the edification of the body of Christ. So it's a little both and. But no, you don't need to be rebaptized. You're baptized. Thank God that he was active, that he had a plan, and that baptism is showed to be powerful and efficacious the fact that you're sitting here as a believing Christian. The first one or the second? Well, the first one's what I'd say, yeah. The second one, I was really upset at myself for even doing it. <laughs> to Why'd be you honest. Do it? Peer pressure. Peer pressure. Yeah. Let's let's cheers. Let's wow. do it. let's do our own this is let, good. Let's do our own liturgy. A cheers. Don't don't denounce sacred things. Wow. <laughs> I'm gonna next time I'm gonna be like, oh, nice okay, collar. Where's the rest okay. of your time? See, I don't think they're sacred. Where's the rest of your time? Um, to what are we cheering to? I don't know. You tell me. <sighs> to work. I don't know. What are we cheering to? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. To baptism. To Christianity. A baptism that saves. Speaking of saving, please love you, brother. Mark. This is good. I'm just kidding. Um, guys, if you like this show, you know what to do. Write, subscribe, holler. Smokeattheologians.com. Shoot us your questions. We're going to answer them. All right. All right. That's it. What time is it? Woo, we got 10 minutes to pick up. Let's go. I, mean, I don't know. The bar seems pretty dead right Blake, now. Let's just... What are you resting on? Yeah. We're the only folks in here. You just listened to Smokin' Theologians. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe. Consider a five-star rating and share it with your friends. If you have any questions that you'd like answered on the show, write to us at holler at smokintheologians.com. No G.